0: Probably the best pioneer in this stuff is actually Facebook. And um, I, I think probably the thing that Facebook did right or better than anyone else, and whether it was just a matter of luck or or whatever it is, but uh, the Mark Zuckerberg, I think pretty early on in that business, defined a, a key metric that everyone in the company was focused on. So instead of having one group focus on this metric, this other group focus on this metric, Everybody was focused on a single metric that represented expansion of value for the customer base, which today in in the growth world, we call it a North Star metric. But uh, he he initially, it was monthly active users and eventually became daily active users. But they knew that just because someone created a profile, that was not a unit of value because if that person never came back again, it was going to be a ghost town profile. So instead of, Instead of these vanity metrics, they picked something that actually reflected value in the business, and I think that's what opened the door to being able to have the growth team that that was uh, implemented there in 2008. Uh, it, I, I think just basically once everybody was on the same page about the metric, it became probably more obvious that everyone played a role in expanding that metric, and they needed to build a cross-functional team to coordinate those activities to move that metric forward.
1: see if I still know how to do this. Hey, everyone. About a month ago, I got an email from Sean Ellis and Morgan Brown, who, among many other things, founded growthhackers.com together. They were working on a book. It was going to be published in mid-April. It was called Hacking Growth. And it was really all about the origins of growth hacking, a term in which Sean himself coined. That's right, the term growth hacking. Um, So, you know, they're putting out this book and, and we talked about setting up a recording for Louder Than Words. Now, You have to keep in mind, it's been a while since my last recording of Louder Than Words. Eight months, to be exact. And a whole lot has gone on in that time, right? Like, I have a one-year-old now. Free time is at a premium. So I get a lot of pitches for Louder Than Words, but most of them have have kind of really been a hard pass. But when I saw Sean Ellis, again, the guy that coined the term growth hacking and helped put those practices in place for high-growth companies like Dropbox, Eventbrite, LogMeIn, Qualaroo... I figured, you know what, there's no better time than now to kick off what I'm affectionately calling season two. And we had a blast. And chatting with Sean is awesome. But his his co-founder at growthhackers.com, Morgan, is a blast as well. He's a COO at a real estate and tech news publication called Inman News. And he's also the co-founder at Full Stack Marketing, which is a growth-oriented marketing firm that's dedicated to helping early stage companies kind of find traction and growth in those early days. So we sat down. We talked about growth hacking, what it means, you know, the practices that were put in place at many of the companies that these guys have worked with, and you know how people can adopt these strategies at their own companies. So we had a blast. I hope you guys enjoy listening to the recording. Enjoy louder than words. The first question, I guess, is is how did you guys how did you guys meet each other? Because obviously, hacking growth is hitting shelves. What April twenty fourth? Did I get that right? Uh, April twenty fifth. April twenty fifth. Pretty close. So everybody's. <laughs> so gonna, was, yeah. How did you guys? How did you guys get hooked up in the first place? And then obviously, yeah, yeah so you guys. Yeah.
0: Pretty funny that. Uh, so we both live in Orange County in Southern California, and um, I I was looking to hire somebody and just started like scouring LinkedIn to try to find somebody with uh, you know who, who seemed to approach growth in a way that I did and I stumbled across Morgan and he had this this growth hacking PowerPoint attached to his LinkedIn profile it was the best growth hacking PowerPoint that I'd ever seen better than anything I had created and so um, it was it was kind of a match made in heaven as soon as I saw that I reached out and I think Morgan was pretty excited that I reached out and uh, we clicked click pretty quick
2: yeah John from uh, from my end uh, so I had done a growth hacking presentation shared it on SlideShare, put it up on LinkedIn. And then one night, uh, I saw a little notification come through uh, LinkedIn. And it was from Sean Ellis. And I knew Sean had coined the term growth hacking. And uh, Sean said, you know, you sent a message, said, hey, I saw your deck, it'd be great to chat. And I turned to my wife, who was sitting next to me, and I said, Erica, the guy that created the term growth growth hacking wants to talk to me about my growth hacking deck uh he either thinks i'm brilliant or a total jackass so 50 <laughs> 50 um i think the jury might still be out but
0: uh yeah it turns out a little bit of both for now but yeah, no. exactly
2: but no that's how it's that's how it started and luckily we're cut in the same same area and uh just kind of right timing and so i went and worked for sean uh at qualaroo um uh kind of in the marketing and growth function then we launched uh growthhackers.com out of that. And that's really kind of where the book uh, was born out
1: of. So yeah, I guess just to to get everybody acquainted, I mean, I'm sure most people listening probably know who both of you guys are. But um, starting with you, Morgan, I guess, like, do you want to just do a quick introduction, like um, who you are and how you got into growth?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I am the COO of Inman News, which is a b2b trade publication we're kind of like the bloomberg for real estate but i've been in digital marketing for 17 years now my first job out of uh, college was for a company called SalesMountain.com, which at the time was a nielsen kind of top 100 site on the internet it was and uh, i started in operations and moved over into digital marketing and just kind of stuck Um, i'd always had a fascination with um computers and marketing and uh So I've been doing digital marketing ever since I've worked both on the agency side with really large brands. uh, And then, you know, for the past uh, 10 years or so, uh, very specifically with early stage uh, startups, helping them, you know, find traction and drive growth. And so now at Inman, I'm the COO, I run the company and have launched and grown a pretty significant subscription business there. And, and that's, that's my background. So I kind of, uh, kind of, Consider myself somewhat of a full stack marketer, if you will. Everything from analytics to, you know, know enough code to code myself into a corner and, um, <laughs> you know, a little bit of this and that. So that's
1: right. me. Nice. You still got the slide deck on LinkedIn?
2: It's still up there.
0: I think so. Nice. <laughs> right, so that, that and probably a million now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sean, how about you?
0: Yeah, so my I started in uh, growth and marketing uh, actually kind of accidentally. I, in 1995, a friend of mine was starting an internet company, and I was only a year out of school. And um, I decided to invest everything I had into the company, so kind of strangely and um and then about six months later, I, I ended up joining, uh, his team and we, that, that company, I, I joined before the first customer came on the product and we grew it, uh, to a NASDAQ listed company. And then same group of people started, uh, log me in uh, a couple of years after we sold that, that earlier business, which was uproar.com. And again, went through the path from customer zero to IPO. So really fortunate, uh, to, to be able to, to run marketing at those companies and sort of see all of the stages of growth. And what I figured out through, through all of that was that the really important stage was the upfront stage. So once you validated that you had a good product that customers really needed, figuring out how to scale growth around that and, and put the the systems in place and the tracking in place and just the order in which you do things. And so I spent the next few years uh basically kind of coming up with a different sort of way to, you know, instead of waiting for the four years of, for options to vest, which normally happens, figured out a way to do really short term assignments with a bunch of companies up front and be fully vested after about six months. And so worked with Dropbox when there was less than 10 people and Eventbrite and Lookout. And so a, a bunch of companies that end up doing really well, but uh, super Super interesting because you don't have a lot of variables in that early stage, and you can really learn how growth works. And that was I just geeked out there for a few years, and then uh, ended up uh, basically qualaroo the product that uh, Morgan and I, uh, Morgan mentioned. We sold that business about a year ago, but basically it's just been trying to figure out how do I help companies with growth yeah you know, more scale than I was able to do just you know one company at a time and that's and that's where we are with growthhackers.com where I'm the founder and CEO now
1: in dropbox that was what 2008 right like, yep, 2008, that, yeah 2008 they weren't such a sure bet right back in 2008 no
0: in fact they looked um, they looked like a company that was crazy to try to compete with uh, microsoft and apple and google who all had kind of similar offerings coming to market
1: that's crazy. Um, as Morgan just alluded to, uh, Sean, you kind of coined the term uh, growth hacking. So I wanted to, to sort of level set there to start in that, you know, that it's, a, it's a term that's often misrepresented. And, and you guys kind of talk about this in the book a little bit. Um, it, it's kind of suggestive of shortcuts, quick hits, lightning in a bottle, I think, you, you know, you, you kind of mentioned in the book. Um, mm-hmm. So, Sean, you you know, when you when you coined this term, you know, it wasn't for Twitter shares. It wasn't for you know, to, to, to look good on a poster, right? It, it was out of necessity. So what was your intent behind that word? Like, wh- what does it mean?
0: Yeah, so what I really wanted to do was to, to narrow the focus. I was, I was primarily focused on early stage startups at the time. So they just don't have the luxury to do everything that's inside a marketing textbook And then there's a bunch of stuff they should be doing that's not in a marketing textbook. And so rather than saying, you shouldn't market that way, you should market this way, I just figured I could define exactly what they should be doing and put a term on it. And so it's really about rapid experimentation, but not just in acquisition where most marketers focus. It's rapid experimentation from acquisition all the way through the the customer journey so that you're you're just looking for opportunities where you know maybe activation is a place that is really important for growth, and just running lots of experiments there might be the most important part for for a business at, at a certain stage so that's I mean in a nutshell, the really short definition would just be rapid experimentation across the full customer journey to drive customer and revenue growth
1: yeah and and maybe it went from a term that that at the time might have seemed gimmicky to to something that now employees. Uh, you know, thousands of marketers, I, 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 work in growth myself. Um, you know, Morgan, uh, for somebody, you know, full stack marketing, you guys, you know, th- this is what you guys specialize in, 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 in working with, you know, startups and companies that are, that are looking to grow. Um, did, did you see sort of an evolution from, from, from companies and thinking like, well, isn't marketing enough? What, what is this growth? Like, so do you see like what, the companies that you work with now, um, like, do they see this as a necessity in today's market landscape? So it's marketing is not, you know, the the way that we've always done. It just isn't enough. This is, this is a very real mindset approach. Um, do you see a lot more people, especially in, in today's market landscape, um, much more open and, and, and know that this is a necessity?
2: Yeah, I think, well, so I think it's kind of, uh, there's kind of two parts to it. One is there's some confusion around the term because I think it's gotten, because it, it has such an appeal to it. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things about the term growth hacking is people either love it or they hate it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no real ambivalence toward it, at least out in the, uh, the digital community. And I think the people that dislike it or think it's, um, you know the people that dislike it mostly associate it with kind of a lot of the blog posts that you see, which tend to be silver bullets or listicles of of shortcuts and um, those types of things, which we think is really kind of misrepresentative of what we see as more as a process that companies run to, as Sean said, quickly experiment and find levers and opportunities to grow kind of throughout the entire product and and customer lifecycle, not just on. On acquisition. And I think, you know, kind of through no one's real fault, marketing, marketing one is responsible for many, many things. You know, you have marketers who are working on events or PR or social media or or SEO or, you know, in, in any organization, there are so many different responsibilities for marketers that they have to contend with. Many of them aren't core to you know, the essential growth of the company kind of, you know, without a, without a routine and laser focus on the levers that actually make the business grow. Um, the other thing is that the way that companies are organized now, you know, uh, marketers are often siloed or partitioned away from some of the best growth opportunities that a company has. You know, they're focused out on channels or they're only allowed to do customer acquisition or they only do Email marketing or you know paid advertising, uh, but they don't have the opportunity to really experiment across the entire customer lifecycle product and, and funnel to, to really make an impact and I think the shift that I've seen is that growth teams, the growth pro- growth hacking process um, and the whole mentality is really about focusing on the core levers that drive growth, um, working on them constantly and then having the flexibility um, to work across team, across the product, you know, throughout the customer lifecycle to create that growth, wherever the best opportunity for it lies.
0: So, it. John, I had a, qu- a quick sure. comment on what you were asking there um, in terms of the in terms of sort of the necessity. Is it is it is it kind of a nice to have to do this stuff or is it is it a requirement to be to, to survive today? And I, I think that really depends on the type of business. So for a company that's a SaaS business, for example, if you are only acquisition focused in SaaS, you're, you're going to fail because, you know, if you have a, if you have a high churn rate, for example, that, you know, let's say you have a 5% monthly churn rate, you have a thousand customers, it means you're losing 50 customers every single month. And then maybe you can grow at that point, but when you have 10,000 customers, it means you're losing 500 customers every month. And it just be, it becomes really obvious that, uh, Looking at the full journey of the customer is is a necessity to be able to to drive growth in the business. So looking at activation and some of the things that Morgan just mentioned in product, uh, but you know other businesses maybe maybe e-commerce you can you can get away with it a little bit more, being more acquisition focused if you're just are arbitraging you know based on an allowable acquisition cost for for a certain product, if you're not worried about renewals. Um, so to, that would be my, my thinking is that first for some businesses it's a necessity for others, maybe not as much now, but I do think that's, that's where the ball is headed. That's where everybody needs to be prepared for that point where you, you're not even going to be able to compete in acquisition if you're not really good at converting and retaining and monetizing customers.
1: And the hard part about that too is right. You need dev resources to do that. Morgan, you alluded to this: mm-hmm. these silos that marketers often work work under. You, you need access to dev resources. You need access to data analysts. Um, maybe even a PM, right? If you're if you're running uh, experiments at a high velocity, um, and m- maybe some organizations or some growth marketers have access to those things, but it's more of a get in line type of thing. Like you know, we, we, you know, we can we can code out these experiments or or code out these initiatives. Uh, but it's gonna be like. You know two to four weeks from now, or you know our next sprint, and that doesn't work mm-hmm. right I mean right th- this, and that's this has to be a dedicated function yeah people are
0: always gonna basically gravitate toward oh just we're so far from our product roadmap let's just let's just keep making the product better and worry about growth later but uh, when you carve out and you dedicate some some resources to growth experimentation, whether that's design development yeah you know, Analytical resources, and then some of the traditional marketing copywriting, uh, just and any of the the resources that are required to run testing across that full uh, customer journey, you you then can start to hit that rhythm uh, that that is needed to really be effective. and you and that's that's what you see in the fastest growing companies is that they they do have that standalone growth team that uh, is is able to to do everything and not go and beg and borrow resources all the time. It's not that, the only thing that I, I would, one caveat I would add there is uh, for for an early stage company, don't right out of the gate, go out and start building a team to do these things that it might take you six months to go out and recruit everybody. Initially start trying to beg, borrow, uh, beg and borrow resources. <laughs> and the ones that you're really having trouble getting are probably the first ones you should go out and hire.
1: Yeah. and And build those quick wins. Morgan, you must see this, right? When you're working with when you're working with companies do you see these kind of silos and and what's your what's your approach or message to to like you know breaking those down in order to you know make this approach work
2: yeah absolutely i mean i think you see it kind of all over the place and it's just a function of traditional corporate structure you know you have your head of marketing you have your like you mentioned you know your head of product you have your head of engineering and i think it first starts with a cultural shift um, that often comes from, you know, has to has to kind of come from the top down. But, you know, if your head of engineering thinks your marketing team are just, you know, they're just spammers, or they, you know, they or the engineering team isn't interested in growth because they'd rather tackle a more technical you know, project that, that requires more heavy lifting, or um, if your marketing and product teams aren't working together, or if your design team or user experience design isn't working closely with your product and, and engineering teams or marketing teams, you know, if there isn't that collaboration, you can't really take advantage of all of the growth opportunities that are in front of you. So I think one, it starts with kind of a cultural, like reckon. Recognition that everyone on the team is responsible for growth, and then two, it's about creating the structure of a collaborative team. You know, it, whether it's a dedicated growth team or whether it's people coming together on an ad hoc basis to work collaboratively to solve growth challenges. And then third, it's you know, dedicating people's time, resources, and attention, uh, whether it's in the product roadmap or or just in how people think about their day and prioritize their day around driving growth no matter where they sit in the organization um it's i I think it's critical and yeah it's a lot of uh it's a lot of organizational inertia and old way of doing things that has to be overcome to try to you know get people uh all aligned but when you talk to people about it You can kind of see the light bulb go off in their head and say, "Yeah, you know, I want to grow this business," or "Yeah, I, I want to, I wish I could talk more directly with the marketers if I'm in engineering," or, you know, "I wish marketing and product work more closely together." So I think there's a real desire to do it, but just some of the, the legacy structures and and ways of doing things don't always make it uh, easy.
1: Uh, It's it's hard work prioritizing this sort of thing. Um, Sean, what did companies like Dropbox, you know, all the the usual suspects when you hear of like the lore of, of, uh, of growth and, and growth hacking, Dropbox, Uber, Airbnb, Facebook, like what did these guys see differently that, um, I don't want to say made this approach easier because I'm sure that they also had their own, um, you know, sort of, uh, lore to breakthrough and, and just old habits and stuff. But what did these guys see differently that, that made them sort of break ground on this and prioritize this kind of approach? So
0: I think probably the best pioneer in this stuff is actually Facebook. And um, I, I think probably the thing that Facebook did right or better than anyone else, and whether it was just a matter of luck or or whatever it is, but uh, the Mark Zuckerberg, I think pretty early on in that business, defined a... A key metric that everyone in the company was focused on. So instead of having one group focus on this metric, this other group focus on this metric, everybody was focused on a single metric that represented expansion of value for the customer base. Which today, in in the growth world, we call it a north star metric. But uh, he he initially it was monthly active users, and eventually became daily active users. But they knew that just because someone created a profile, that was not a unit of value, because if that person never came back again, it was going to be a ghost town profile. So instead of instead of these vanity metrics, they picked something that actually reflected value in the business. And I think that's what opened the door to being able to have the growth team that, that was uh, implemented there in 2008. Uh, it, I, I think just basically once everybody was on the same page about the metric, it became probably more obvious that everyone played a role in expanding that metric, and they needed to build a cross-functional team to coordinate those activities to move that metric forward. At Dropbox, we approached it a little bit differently. Again, as I mentioned, there was only there was less than 10 people when I was there, so we didn't have a lot of the silos that most organizations had. What, what we had was all engineers and me, and so what my goal was was to work with the ceo to create a culture of growth and experimentation and 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 measurement that everybody could kind of think think about growth but really instill that into the culture from the beginning because it's culture is always much much more malleable in the early days and so you know basically starting to run those experiments sharing the wins sharing the insights into where value was happening for customers and where there was friction in onboarding and all of these things that we, we were able to build that culture in the six months that I was there so that uh, they had, after I left, they actually didn't bring in another marketer for, for a nine month period. There was no marketer there yet. They, they, you can, they just published some numbers recently that, that had been private before that of their growth trajectory. So they just hit the $1 billion annual revenue run rate. And you can see that they didn't miss a beat in their growth trajectory through those nine months with no marketer on the team. Because the engineers were addicted to the feedback loop and seeing the improvement, and ultimately, they recognize that growth is not just spammy marketing stuff, but growth is about having more and more people experience the great product that they've created. And, And it's not that hard to get on board when you realize that some of the best growth levers are just fixing broken onboarding things. And... That, that that can do more to drive growth than coming up with some externally f- facing program that that maybe is, is perceived as a bit more spammy.
1: And, and it's funny, a lot of these companies that you hear, these usual suspects, were founded by engineers too. So they, they probably didn't have marketers on staff. They saw high velocity of growth very mm-hmm. early on when there was probably five people, if that, uh, working on it. So it was kind of, you had to adopt this kind of approach. Um, yeah. And I
0: think a lot of the other teams in Silicon Valley really uh, are are run by or heavily influenced by uh, Facebook alumni that basically, you know, <laughs> right. Uber, until pretty recently, their, their head of growth was a former head of international growth at Facebook. Uh, the Pinterest team has a lot of former Facebook people there. Um, LinkedIn really evolved sort of separately I think they started their growth team the same year as Facebook but um, you it's I think that ultimately everybody's looking at the same basic physics of how growth works and trying to orient their teams and their approaches to to maximize growth and so we're all we're all working on the same set of laws and so it's not surprising that you have these parallel efforts that uh, start to look pretty similar across companies.
1: Oh yeah, for sure, and, and you mentioned speaking of facebook alumni uh, you tell the story of of noah kagan who who 's the founder of uh, of sumo uh, me now um the and he was uh, i 've actually talked to him about this before, but he was he was at Facebook right in the early days, and he you know mm-hmm. revenue generating ideas to Mark zuckerberg, and they would get shot down because if mm-hmm. it, if it didn 't if it, it wasn 't focused around getting you know more users then don 't bring it to me and that kind of mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of obsessive approach to um, prioritization is so hard. And it's, uh, and,
0: and it's so critical, especially yeah. in an early stage company where you just have a limited number of resources. If, you, if you're not channeling them toward the best opportunities, you're, you're going to lose a lot of the impact that, that your initiatives would otherwise have.
1: I want to I want to talk about the aha moment, which you guys talk about a lot in the book. Um, which I think the way you guys defined it was it's it's that magical moment or experience uh, that a user goes through when when they know that your product is is a must have. It's that wow factor, that magic moment. Uh, and in the book, you tell a couple of really great stories around it. One of them about Yelp, who had you know unknowingly buried their aha moment which was allowing users to quickly review local businesses um you know when they kind of uncovered this right and made that more of a focus you know their team went out and created 20 million profiles of businesses in the in the bay area and encouraged their users to write reviews um that's when their sort of growth took off when they sort of highlighted and uncovered that aha moment um that's it's It seems like a lot of growth or experimentation sometimes may even start before that moment is clearly understood by everybody in the organization, which is obviously a mistake but um you know Morgan, we'll start with you how do how does a company or a marketer go about uncovering that aha moment if if it's not already uh obvious to them
2: yeah absolutely, and I think that's one of the tricks right is I think when we're building products or kind of driving people to specific features. We think we know what the aha moment is. And it turns out we often don't know. Uh, you know, we, we tell another great story of how Instagram started as Bourbon, which was a location-based check-in app. And they found, you know, that the photos were the thing. Um, and they smartly stripped everything away and stuck with photos and added some filters. Uh, and kind of the rest uh, took off from there. But I think really it's it's two things. One, it's kind of making sure Your product uh, or service is set up to be able to get the data insights that you need, Um, like Yelp figured out that uh, reviews were the thing by looking at their data and seeing that people were doing that, even though the feature was buried ridiculously deep in the UI. And so you have to be able to, you know, dive into your data and see what people are doing Um, and understand kind of what the the path is and what the the most used features are uh, for the people that ultimately end up being very successful with your product. Um, And then the second thing, which is equally as important, I think, is to get, you know, qualitative data, to talk to users, to survey them, to do customer development, and to ask people, you know, why, uh, why they're using the product, what the value is for it, and and I think the data gives you kind of the what, so it might illuminate some things that aren't immediately obvious to you about user behavior. But really, talking to users is the only way to get the the why behind it, so you can understand what the value is, um, what the value they're deriving from from that product use. And I think by doing those two things, you can start to find um, what some people call you know the golden path or the the golden motion um which is essentially that that path to that aha moment uh that that really makes the product and its value click uh to that to that person
1: sean what if in combing through the data going through qualitative analyses what if you don't what if it doesn't jump out at you like what if you're not sure that your product has one
0: yeah so i i think there's really an art to it and um so, I mean, I think the bigger concern would be that your product does not offer value that's important to the customer. And so that that would be a potential. So there's not really an aha moment or a, a highly valuable experience that they get long-term from the product. If that's the case, you shouldn't be trying to grow that business. You should be You should be iterating on the core product until it gets to a point where it's scalable. But assuming that you actually have product market fit, then I have a a very qualitative driven process. so much more the much more than the quantitative. Where I'm I'm first trying to uncover the core value. Once I know the core value, then I'm working backwards to what is the first point in the user journey that is likely a taste of that core value. And and then once you, so you come up with these kind of qualitative hypotheses around what it might be, and then you can see do those. Does doing that thing lead to long-term retention or at least correlate re- with long-term retention? You may not know if it's causation or correlation, but uh, what you do know is if it's not correlated, and if it's not correlated, then it's probably, probably not a good magic moment to shoot for. So that's that to me is the starting point, is really drilling into that core value. And the way I figure that out is I start with uh, figuring out who the must-have users are, and I ask a survey question, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And I'm looking for people who would answer, uh, I would be very disappointed. So I ignore people who say they would be somewhat disappointed. I ignore people who say they'd be, you know, not disappointed. And just looking at people who say, I would be very disappointed if I could no longer use this product. Then I just have have a process of just drilling down and drilling down until I find that one core benefit that, has both the broadest appeal and the deepest appeal. So the right balance of, of the people are really passionate about the product, but not in a super niche way, but in a way that, that affects enough of the people. And, and once I understand that, then everything that I'm doing to build that growth engine is around fine tuning the onboarding to that experience. And that starts with trying to figure out what that aha
1: moment is. But what, qualitatively
0: understanding one can help you deduce what the other is.
1: Yeah, and, and listeners, uh ch- check out the book because they go into in depth the must-have survey, which questions to ask, what to look for as far as results and things like that. It's all in there. Morgan, you were going to say something?
2: Yeah, I think that that's kind of the, you know, too many people are in a hurry to grow and, you know, want to they're like, "Oh, we're going to start growth hacking or we're going to start, you know, advertising on Facebook without figuring out what this core product value is to their users." And that's where that's where um companies get into trouble, right? Because you're spending to either drive a bunch of people in who won't ultimately stick around and won't be valuable, so you're wasting a ton of money, or you're, you know, confusing people or or disappointing people, all of which are really bad outcomes. And so I think if you look at some of the most successful products, they didn't start out that way. I mentioned Instagram started as bourbon, Pinterest started as tote, Um, you know, all of these were kind of a product concept that they realized didn't have kind of the essential aha moment and and iterated on that product before they really, uh, you know, went full bore into growth mode. And I think, too, you know, a lot of companies could use uh, those examples and, and kind of take the advice to really make sure they understand what that aha moment is before they pour out the resources in uh, to growth or otherwise they'll end up, you know, sputtering out.
1: And so many execs or marketers even... They they want that aha moment to be a certain thing, and it's 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 about letting go of that, right? And and sort of deferring to the user, right? Letting the user mm-hmm. decide what that what that aha moment is, because too many companies, oh, oh, we we know what it is, or, or 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 this is going to be it, or you know, the, <laughs> and uh, that's that's like the opposite right. of of what this approach is.
0: Yeah, you definitely want to crowdsource it. The, the, the answer is there if you can figure out how to, how to extract it from your existing users. But until you until you do that, you, one, you don't, you don't know if it even exists. And then if it does exist, being able to ask your users and engage with your users in a way to, to get that information, that's, that's so powerful in being able to drive growth in a business. And uh, it's crazy that people, people uh, have their own assumptions that get in the way.
1: So once you've uncovered that aha moment, um, which uh, you know could could be early on, it, it could be uh, next week. Maybe for some of these listeners that are that are going to pour into their data, this is like really when when a lot of the fun begins, right? This is when you have a basis for experimentation. You've identified the behavior look you're looking to in, you know inspire or influence, but experimentation right now, and you guys kind of talk about this in the book with with many companies. Um, might look like uh, a bunch of people sitting around a, a whiteboard for about an hour, and you know, kind of riffing on how we can you know get more users to do X or, um, you know, sort of going with their own guts or their own opinions. Uh, but talk about, and, and you guys mentioned this in the book. Talk about how ultimately that's that's a head fake, and how you know what the real approach to experimentation should look like. Sean, can we can we start with you? Yeah. So
0: one thing I would say is that um, the only thing worse than running bad experiments is running no experiments. So (laughs) I, I I think you know just just to kind of put that cautionary flag out there that I, I would just you know if. If if it comes down to overthinking the experiments at the at the expense of actually running them, just go ahead and run them and run run them like not so perfect and get better over time. So the a big predictor uh, that I find is just sheer number of experiments that are run is a big predictor of how a company grows because you learn through those experiments. But you do want to get smarter about where you target those experiments, and that's where you know being really clear around an objective. Uh, that is a high leverage opportunity for growth. So, um, you know, we we talked about Facebook. So they had uh, they they identified that uh, getting uh, seven friends in ten days was if they could get someone to that level, they were going to stick around a long time. So it gives the whole team of on the customer acquisition side something to really shoot for. That's the finish line that they need to shoot for, rather than just saying long term retention is what they need to shoot for. Um, So really understanding what activation in your business is. Usually that's the first high leverage opportunity I see in most businesses. And so if you haven't done a lot of focus around activation, then that's that's probably a good place to to start to see if you have a lot of uh, a lot of potential there. But, yeah, defining an objective that's um, relatively short term. So maybe a month or two and baselining what your number is and having a target and then literally having the team start to generate ideas and, uh, around as much information as you can get around that. So if you can run some qualitative research that gives you insights into why people may not be taking the step that you want them to take, then, then you're probably going to have better ideas. But, um, you know, some of the ideas, some of the best ideas are just random and they don't come off of necessarily a lot of, of research. And, you know, sometimes you get a great idea when you see somebody else do something interesting and say, like, Oh, we should try that too. Uh, even <laughs> to the point when I was at log me in, I actually had, um, our competitor at the time was go to my PC and, uh, I had their VP of product or the VP of marketing actually give me a call and say, can you stop copying all our landing pages? And <laughs> I told them, uh, don't worry it's very temporary. I'm going to find something better soon and then we won't be copying anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's that's a great response. Um, Morgan is in in your experience like internal biases, how hard are those to get over when you're, you know, well, uh, uh, you know with, with the companies that you've worked with um when it comes to identifying the not only the experimentation but prioritization, right? Because everybody's going to think mm-hmm. what they came up with is the right direction.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I, so everyone's you know everyone's uh, kid is the best looking and smartest, right? So same thing in business. You know your your issues and your your part of the business you know deserves deserves the attention. And I think that's really where what Sean pointed to you is is critical is to come up with that with that objective uh, first, so that everyone is aligned around and in agreement with this is the thing that is most pressing and is going to create the most opportunity for growth right out of the bat. And then really. Um, Encouraging and, and getting everyone on board with contributing as many ideas as possible. Um and really what you're looking for is is all sorts of input because everyone sees the business in a different way. You know, you can get great ideas for growth from your customer success team or from your corporate development team or uh from your salespeople, you know, people that aren't traditionally charged. Um, with kind of this this experimentation, product development, and growth. But you get all of those ideas uh, into the pipeline. And then um, rather than just kind of randomly picking things, throwing them against the wall and seeing what sticks, it's up to the the people that are driving this growth experimentation process to, to rig- rigorously prioritize those ideas, to find the ones that are going to have the biggest impact uh, for the company Um, and, and kind of their towards their growth objectives. And I think that really varies, um, based on the size and stage of your company, you know, some very large companies, for example, Twitter, they have a whole experiment review process that you need to get your experiment validated and signed off on by, you know, someone else before you run it. Whereas at a smaller company, you know, having the growth team saying this is a, a, an experiment worth running we're going to go ahead and do it, uh, can be more than enough to do, Um, and so, once you prioritize them, then getting that those tests out into the wild, and then I think the most important part is to do the to learn from them. You know, so many people, especially in smaller companies, um, and even even in large matrix organizations, are moving so fast. They have so many, so much on their plate in terms of the responsibilities and things that they're tasked with, and they're just trying to get things done or cross things off a list. And I think the the learning piece of this growth hacking process where you look at the data, did the experiment work um, or not? You know, why or why not? And what does that mean for how we move forward from there is kind of the critical part of the feedback loop that makes this whole thing go. Because without learning, you're starting from zero every, you know, with every experiment. And that doesn't get you the, com- the compounding wins uh, that, that drive growth.
1: Right. And, and document it every step of the way so, so the people that come after you or, or two years down the line can see all the learnings. Uh, I, I want to give these guys, you know, listeners sort of an idea of what, what a great result can look like from, you know, the hypotheses all the way through to the result. Morgan, you, you guys talk about in the book, um, the example of an experiment you guys run at Inman news regarding subscription lengths. Can you quickly just share that story real quick?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and this, uh, so at Inman, um, we, a big part of our business is uh, new subscriptions. Much like the Wall Street Journal, people pay either monthly or quarterly or an annual subscription to to read the news. Um, and so, uh, when we originally launched the subscription, we had an annual subscription and a monthly subscription. And we decide, and we saw that our churn rate on our monthly subscribers was much higher than on the annual subscribers, which is probably, uh, you know, it's not a yeah, you know, it's pretty obvious, right, that you could expect that people that only sign up for a month are going to turn at a higher rate than annual. But one of the things we thought was that um, one of the hypotheses was that if, you know, in a month time, you can't really get the core value of getting this news to improve your business every day. And we said, why don't we test uh, offering monthly subscriptions versus quarterly subscriptions, um, assuming that a three month period people would really make a habit. Out of reading this news and relying on it and improve our retention. So we ran a test uh, where we swapped out the monthly uh, subscription with a quarterly subscription. So now you could only buy quarterly or annual subscriptions. And what we saw was a very minimal dip in conversion rate of people signing up, but a much higher retention rate after the three months. Um, and then a whole lot of other good things came from that. So, and uh, not only do we dramatically increase the retention rate, we're also capturing more cash up front because a quarterly subscription obviously costs more than a monthly subscription. Um, and so, it's just an example of um, when you when you think more about growth uh, in general across the customer lifecycle rather than just you know marketing and going out and getting new customers. We 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 test and experiment with our pricing just like people do with their Facebook ads and email subject lines. And, um it's that kind of throughout that that kind of focus throughout the funnel that can create the biggest wins and um we have we've had no other experiment create that kind of lift in retention than simply uh rearchitecting some of our pricing and subscription lengths
1: That's an amazing result and I- I'm sure you guys were a little concerned at the time, right when you take away that monthly option do you t- you know do you remove you know the more price sensitive Customer, um, you know, do you see a disruption in that way? But uh, by offering the three month, which which really isn't, you know, fr- from a time standpoint, that much longer of a period, uh, it increases retention, which is really interesting. Just the psychology of that, being able to subscribe for a longer period of time just gets people in the mindset of this is a longer term engagement so well th- yep. that's an amazing result um
2: yeah and, and we did you know and so and for that experiment that you know so we we ab tested that right and we ran it and obviously you have to run it over a period of time because you need to wait to see the re- how the retention you know how the retentions impacted three four months down the line so that's an example of a long experiment uh, to run but yeah it was it was very impactful for the business but yeah you're totally right
1: sean i, I wanted to I wanted to ask you this question. So you see companies like Airbnb who, you know, I saw a post a couple of weeks ago from somebody on their data team, talk about how they ran something like 700 experiments in a month. In in the book, you guys talked about HubSpot who ran, I think it was like a thousand experiments in in less than a year to identify ways for growing. At the time, I think it was called Sidekick. It was their email product. Now it's Mm -hmm. kind of rolled into HubSpot's sales product, but they ran over a thousand experiments in less than a year. Um, You know, they're, velocity in total volume isn't everything, right? So th- there might be a lot of listeners hearing stuff like that today or reading about it in the book and be like, man, thousand, I, should I just, just you know, test every headline on every page? But <laughs> the, the cadence is going to be different for everybody. But the, the, just uh, the idea and the principle of that sort of velocity, like what goes into hitting a comfortable cadence and velocity like that that works for your company no matter how, how big or small you are?
0: Yeah, for me, I, like, I, yeah, those are crazy sort of velocity numbers, and it's it'd be nice to be Airbnb with that level of traffic that it can <laughs> support. That, um, but you know, I think I think the reality is that most people give lip service to testing, and and they're really only running one or two tests per month or less. And uh, simply going from that one or two tests per month to three tests per week can make a huge impact on how much you learn over the course of a year and you don't you don't really learn a lot when you're not testing it's testing is a form of research and it's you you ultimately you can run as many surveys as as you want or user tests but um a lot of times people don't even know what they want but when you actually run a te- an ab test and and you see what people pick that's that's really powerful and so um and and a lot of tests are are way more impactful than you think they're going to be. And so it's really hard upfront to guess the impact, uh, even though I recommend that people try to guess the impact so that you can, you can kind of the, the, the three factors that I recommend there in that uh, both of us recommend is uh, impact confidence and ease and uh, looking at each test on, on each of those criterias. Uh, I, we had one test at um, growth hackers where the my teammate guessed like, I think it was a four on impact and, uh, and it was, it was a really easy test though. It, it was literally like a 10 minute test. It was just moving an email collector to a different part of the page. But, um, even though he guessed a four on impact, it actually gave that one simple change gave us a, uh, 700% increase in monthly emails collected. And if we didn't, we probably wouldn't have run it if we were only looking at impact, but the fact that it scored a 10 on ease, we and we wanted to get our three tests out that week, somebody said, let's just do that one. That one's easy, and it turned out that that one led to, to a great result, and so you just don't know which of those, that deep well of ideas, one of those is, is a breakthrough idea, so it's not about silver bullets. Usually, it's it's incremental stuff that, when it adds together, is pretty powerful, but I guarantee you, if you have a thousand ideas in your backlog, one of them is going to be really powerful in the impact on growth. And the only way to figure out which one it is, is to run a lot of tests. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think I, I wouldn't go out and aim for the 700 tests per month or a thousand in a year right out of the gate, but do set a bar that's like at least two, maybe three. And, um, and then once you're doing that, then, then continue to set the bar higher as long as you're as uh, as Morgan recently said, uh, you know you want to go fast but you don't want to go you want to go like Formula One fast not the truck <laughs> with the brakes out going a hundred miles down a hill fast so it's 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 fast but in control
1: for sure um, I want to open Pandora's box to, to sort of close out um, and ask you guys like what are what are what are like it could be one two three different tools maybe in, in your growth stack that, that you guys rely on? Um, you know, it could be A/B testing, could be uh, a data analysis tool. Uh, um, what what are some things that you guys sort of uh, have relied on to uh, you know to, to to effectively run experiments and and track success and, and stuff like that? Uh, Morgan, we'll we'll start with you.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's there's a there's a couple of things. I, you know, I think marketers in particular, um, and I can say this because I'm a marketer. You know, we when we think about problems, we think about it through the marketing lens and then we try to try to fix it with more marketing. Um, And, you know, so marketers are always hiring other marketers. Uh, The first person I hired at Inman was a data scientist uh, because I knew our gap wasn't in marketing. It was understanding the business. So I think really when, you know, if you kind of think about what are the gaps that I have um, in my skill set or in my knowledge of the problem I'm trying to solve and then what are the pieces, whether they're people or tools or processes that can that can help me fill those? That's that's kind of the approach. Uh, specifically on the tools, though, to give some people some real concrete stuff. If you can't hire a data scientist, which I recommend every marketing team do, um, you know, one that we use is a tool called Segment.com, uh, which uh, what it, it, it acts like plumbing between a whole bunch of different tools. So it lets you take event data on your website. So when someone clicks on a button or fills out a form or visits a page and then sends that data to any other kind of marketing automation system, whether it's your email marketing or your live chat or your customer support or your reporting uh, interface or your payment gateway, um, it just makes it really easy to move data around to different systems to give you that holistic uh, picture that we talk about with the, the customer journey, because so much of this data lives in different systems. Um, another one that that I use is uh, Bounce Exchange, which is um, a email capture overlay um, system. You know, Sumo that we mentioned from Noah is also an excellent one. Um, but uh, the reason I like Bounce Exchange is that it's a managed service. So when Sean talks about velocity um bounce exchange is expensive but it comes with a team that runs all the optimization in the background so i've run over 700 experiments uh over the last year and they've all been run by bounce exchange um and the team there so it kind of gets you velocity without having to build this massive team we only have uh, three people on the marketing team at inman um and then uh you know a couple of others that are that are big favorites. So Zapier is great for kind of wiring together systems. Uh, Unbounce for landing page testing to really rapidly test uh, headlines, forms, imagery, kind of all that stuff to really dial in um, acquisition. And then uh, Chartmogul, um, which is a uh, which is a, a analytics package specifically for subscription businesses. Lets us see things like the retention and do some of the retention testing that, that I mentioned earlier
1: grabs taking notes, all the stuff that yes. uh, I'm not using. <laughs> Sean, Sean, how about you?
0: So Morgan named a lot of the ones that I was going to mention, but a, a couple others, I think amplitude is a, a great product that can sit on top of segment and uh, it is, you know, or doesn't require segment, but it is uh, I, what I love about it is it's, it's, much more intuitive than a lot of the other um, data tracking products, but it's also uh, free for like up, up to like 20 million events per month. So they've they've really come on strong in the last couple of years in the, in the analytics space uh, optimizely just, you know, kind of like how uh, Morgan was mentioning unbounce optimizely is just, for improving that velocity of testing, the 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 one that I mentioned uh, earlier, which was you know a ten minute test of moving an email collector from the bottom of the page to the top of the page, if we didn't have Optimizely, it would have been a big, a really hard test to run. But because of Optimizely, it was it was a simple one to knock out. And then even just like Mailchimp, uh, just some some simple simple A/B testing mail programs. Um, there's a, there's a lot of them out there, but they're good. And then uh, SurveyMonkey, you know, it's been around forever, but uh, I. I think it's a, a solid tool for, for surveying and, and understanding users, um, usertesting.com as well for, for being able to visualize what's what's happening and, and hear from users as they're trying to navigate uh, different parts of your funnel or your website. Uh, so th- there's, there's so many great tools out there. And uh, I think you know you, the main things are that you want the really good analytics, qualitative insights, and then things that facilitate your testing throughput.
1: Those are all great too. Um, yeah, that, that's great. This this was a lot of fun. I think uh, not only was uh, all, all the all the anecdotes and the narrative that you guys applied super helpful, but even yeah, at the end there, just, just concrete things that maybe people could use to to help expedite or or sort of boost their their growth efforts. Um, this this was a lot of fun. So, guys, the book. I don't want to say the wrong date again. April twenty fifth, right? Got it right that that's time. That's correct. April twenty so fifth. If you're if you're listening to this after that, what the hell are you waiting for? Go out and get this book. Um, <laughs> I have read a copy. Uh yes, I I guess I'm a bit biased cuz I had these guys in the podcast, so I'm also really honest though. So I would, you know, maybe say it would suck maybe afterward though. But <laughs> but it's it's great. This is I I really thought like uh, you know, I hope this isn't another book that's like um talking about channels and things that you can go do to go viral. It's not. This is this is like the playbook. Um, that hasn't been written yet. So this is, this is great. I really think that you guys um, really have a, a massive success here. I can't wait to see how this does. Um, Thanks, John. But, we appreciate it. But but everybody go, go check out this book. Um, Sean, Morgan, like where can guys uh, maybe go connect with you or, or just learn more about growth hacking in general? Obviously, growthhackers.com. But what, how can people mm-hmm. connect with you guys online?
0: Well, so one, they can they can get the link to the book at growthhacker.com. So just drop the S from growthhackers.com. And we're both pretty active on Twitter. If uh, people reach out, um, we love to engage and geek out about this stuff. We're really passionate about it.
1: Morgan?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, at Morgan B on Twitter and uh, happy to talk growth, debate it, debate the term, um, <laughs> geek out on experiments. Um and and share share the things that are working for us. I think the the community at Growth Hackers uh, is one of the best places to meet like-minded folks and share wins and, and things that are working and get questions answered. So um, I'm over there and and active as well.
1: Yeah, connect with these two guys. They're they're obviously stalwarts and and leaders in this space. So so definitely connect with these guys online. Sean Morgan, thanks a lot for coming on Louder Than Words, man. This is a lot of fun. Thank Thanks you, Thanks for John. having us, John. I really a lot appreciate of fun. it. Appreciate I'll, it. Uh, I'll ping you guys once I have...